Let us pray. We give you thanks, our great God, that before your very throne, that we do have a strong and perfect plea, our great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you thanks for this priest who became also the sacrificial lamb, that he offered him his very body, shed his very blood, so that we might receive the forgiveness of sins, that he has for once and for all made a sacrifice that is sufficient for our past, our present, and even our future sins. We who were once under, under a state of wrath are now reconciled to you. And we give you praise and thanks for this great high priest. We give you thanks that he did not remain buried, but that he did rise from the dead. He ascended on high and entered into the very holy of holies. And even there now, he makes intercession for us. It is in that light that we know that you hear our prayers, that you receive them, that you care for us, that you are a merciful God to us. Our Father, we confess before you the sins that we have committed. We have committed in ways in which we have transgressed all of your commandments, whether it be in, in action, whether it be in thought, whether it be because we failed to do the duty that was there before us. Father, we must confess these things. We have not lived up to our own promises to follow you. We have not loved you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. So all the more we give you thanks and praise our God for our Lord Jesus, our high priest who has interceded for us in all these things. And he points to his own sacrifice and shows that we belong to you. Our Father, we do pray for this world in which you have placed us. There's so much of the wickedness, the crimes, the, the violence, enmity, the immorality that takes place in this world. Father, we pray for that work of your spirit to bring a measure of peace, to bring a, a measure of justice, measure of goodness and grace in this world. We pray for your church to be a light in this world, uh, that, to, that your church worldwide, all the places that you have placed us, we pray that we would show forth to our neighbors, to our communities, that love, that mercy that belongs to you through Jesus Christ. We lift up those who have left from among us and whom we support. We're sharing forth this gospel of Christ and pray for your blessings and uh, upon them. We particularly lift up chaplains serving in the military and in the hospitals and hospices and institutions throughout this land and this world. Pray for them to be faithful in the proclamation of your word and ministering the grace of Christ. We pray, our Father, for our government, 
pray for wisdom to be upon men and women who serve as elected officials. Pray for them to carry out their work diligently and with integrity. We pray for those with great responsibility upon their shoulders, praying that you would grant them discernment and wisdom, even if they do not acknowledge you, yet you will give to them that which is needed to carry out your will. Our Father, we pray for those who are in positions of leadership throughout the world, for wisdom for them. We pray for those who carry out uh, the work of bringing forth justice and defending the causes of the, of the needy and defenseless. Think particularly of our military and pray for your protection of them. Our Father, we pray uh, for judgment to come against uh, the, the people of ISIS. And we pray that you would put an end uh, to such wickedness. That you would protect even now those who... Uh, are in their territories and your protection and uh, that again that you would bring uh, the might of others against them and bring them down our father we uh, pray for this church we lift up uh, the ministries uh, those who serve as elders and deacons and lead in ministries for those who are volunteering and pray for your blessings upon them They seek to be a blessing in your name to others. We particularly uh, lift up the um, search team and praying for discernment for them and blessing upon them as they uh, carry this great responsibility to to find uh, the the man that you have called to be their pastor. And we pray for individuals in our church. We pray for those who are mourning loved ones. We pray for Norma Graham. We pray for your blessings and comfort to be with her and the loss of, uh, of her husband, Ray. We pray for, um, for Lou Leventi, to another church who has lost his wife. Pray for your comfort to be with him. We pray for those who are sick, those who are suffering through chronic pains, those who are, are facing um, uh, Illnesses that they know that they are likely not to recover from. For all of these cases, we pray for your mercies upon them, to grant them even more strong faith and trust in your goodness, in your grace, and in your mercy. We pray for ourselves even now. You know us, each one of us here. You know what we need. What we need to hear, and we pray that in the reading and the proclamation of your word, we will be attuned to your spirit speaking to each of us. But all the more we will be convicted where we need conviction and comforting where we need comforting, exhortation where we need exhortation, that we may live as true followers of yours. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, for our scripture, if you will turn uh, with me to the, the book of Jonah. I forgot to write down the page number if you're using the NIV Bibles. But you remember, if you know where Daniel is, you just remember that heaven just, that's Joel, ain't, that's Amos, over Obadiah, Jordan. 
and now you're at Jonah. So maybe that'll, that'll get you there. That's the only way I can remember myself. I had an Old Testament professor teach me that one. So we're in Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to begin with verse uh, 10. And just as a reminder, um, I'll be using uh, the English Standard Version. Let, let me just say the, um, most of these versions, whether it's English Standard, whether it's the NIV, which are out there in the pews, the New American Standard, the King James, New King James, they're all fine Bibles, and you, you use a Bible that you're comfortable with. And, and having the different translations actually can help us even kind of understand some meanings that we might miss in another one. So again, Jonah chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Our Father, open our eyes to to not just be able to read words, but to understand the meaning of this passage, to, to examine our hearts in light of it, and all the more that we may serve you and know you. In Christ's name, amen. Well, no doubt, when one thinks of Jonah fleeing from his assignment to, to, to preach in Nineveh, I mean, the quick assumption that we we all make is that he fled from Nineveh because he was afraid of Nineveh. I mean, we we feel for Jonah there. I mean, who among us would relish a call, let's say, from God, and he says, I want you to go to the capital city of of North Korea. I want you to walk right in there, and I want you to proclaim judgment against us. But that's not as we were just reading, why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. It reveals here the real motive for his flight. So let's begin looking again at the text, and beginning in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So the king of Nineveh's efforts worked. Remember from last Sunday, he, he had ordered these rituals of contrition, of widespread repentance throughout the whole population for this very purpose in hopes of averting God's judgment. He had said, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And lo and behold... God turned from his anger, and he spared the city. Now, as I'm studying for this, and I'm looking at the, um, the commentators, they all raise a question here that actually never occurred to me, which is this. Does God change his mind? You know, I mean, does God say he's going to do one thing, and now 
We can get him to, to change what he was going to do. And actually, the Hebrew term for relented is the same term for repented. Does God actually repent? And like I said, it never occurred to me because when I look at the context here, it just isn't a very difficult thing to understand what was going on because you'd have to presume that God never intended or never had the desire for Nineveh to repent. But again, as Jonah himself says, it was that very suspicion of Jonah's. That's why he didn't want to go to Nineveh because he suspected God was going to show mercy. So we might ask him, well, why didn't he pronounce that? I mean, why didn't he have Jonah preach that if you turn, then, you know, I'm going to spare you? Well, I've got a sanctuary here full of uh, parents, very experienced parents. And, you know, this isn't too difficult to explain. Yeah, times, didn't you? You wanted your kids to settle down. You needed to them behave. And so you told them, I've had enough, and here is what's about to happen. And then, typically, what happens, if you say it in the right way, they settle down very quickly. And you, you're then in a position which you said, okay, well, we won't, I won't punish you this time. The kids think, wow, we changed, I changed mom's mind or dad's mind. When it was your intention all along just simply to make them change the behavior. You weren't really, or maybe you needed to, but you were hoping they were going to change the behavior and you didn't have to carry that through. That's what's going on here. It seems, it seems rather simple to understand. Now, the real part, the fun part, is, is Jonah's response to uh, God's relenting. So let's, let's just read that again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Don't you just love this? I mean, of all the responses... To expect, uh, you know, you preach into the city, the whole city re- repents, you know, or the, or, or, or the trying to understand the motivation of Jonah, you know, from fleeing from, from Nineveh, you know, where he was afraid and, and all these things. The last thing we're expecting is that what really bothers Jonah is that God is merciful, that he's gracious. I mean, Jonah is angry, and he's not. He's not so much, he's not angry at the Ninevites, he's angry at God. You know, you can just see him with his arms folded and he's stamping his foot, you know. And what is he angry at God for? Again, gracious and, and merciful. I mean, I think this is better than the fish story. So let's, let's see if we can figure Jonah out here. Why is he, why does he seem to be acting so childish here? Well, To understand Jonah, we need to understand what Nineveh is self-representing. It was likely the capital of Assyria. So Nineveh represented Assyria in the same way that people speak of Washington, D.C., and they're speaking of the United States. So what is said of Nineveh is, is the same thing as speaking about Assyria. 
Now, Syria was the dominant power throughout much of the of the 9th and 8th century B.C. Jonah lives right there at the beginning of the 8th century. So the only thing that he has ever known of Assyria is this dominant power, always threatening the stability of his country, even collecting tribute from that country. He knew Assyria to be a ruthless power, and probably, I mean, as a prophet, he even foresaw that that power would someday may come and destroy his beloved nation of Israel. So can you understand now Joshua's displeasure at seeing his God relent from destroying the nation that will show no mercy to his own nation? You know, there's one other assignment that we know about that Jonah was given from God. It's in 2 Kings 14.25. And in that, it speaks of of the king of Israel, Jeroboam II, expanding the boundaries, actually restoring the boundaries for Israel, getting getting that land back. And it says, and it was was according to the word of God spoken through, through Jonah. Now, that's the assignment that Jonah likes. It's much better than being sent to to Nineveh. Now, again, you might think, well, still, Jonah, you get to go there and you get to pronounce this judgment. But but Jonah, like he said, I I knew this. I said it to you, God, before when you sent sent this to me. You've got something else in mind. I know that you're merciful. So how did Jonah know that? Well, Jonah knew the scriptures. Let me read from Exodus 34, 5 to 7. This is that scene. Moses has said, God, I want to see you. God puts him between, you know, in, in the cleft of a rock. He's going to pass by. And this is what God himself says. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So this is a very popular uh, refrain that would take place in the scriptures and in the, in the, among the Israelites uh, in Psalm 86, verse 15. Says, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. You may uh, remember I read almost the same phrase in Nehemiah, the, the call to worship. How we, we read the same phrase in a responsive reading. This is how they, they thought of God. So Jonah knew, as all the Israelites did, that, that the Lord is a holy God. He knew that the Lord is righteous, that he demands justice, but he also knew that the Lord is merciful and that, that mercy is what he could not trust. That's kind of baffling, isn't it? Isn't mercy the very quality of God that Jonah, as an Israelite, ought to have prized? I mean, after all, it's that very mercy that gave the people hope of not being destroyed. Well, that's true, but Jonah and the people of Israel understood God's mercy to be connected to his covenant 
promises. Here's the real issue. It's not so much that Nineveh is particularly evil, although, although it's wicked. Rather, the issue is that Nineveh is outside of the covenant. It's outside the covenant that God had made with his own nation, Israel. So, yes, by all means, may God be merciful, but such mercy is for his own people. So, let me read another example. In Psalm 103, it's praising God for the mercy that is reserved for his people. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. We who belong to his covenant. Again, when I, when I read that passage from, from Exodus, God is declaring who he is to his new nation of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious to his people. He does not deal with his people according to their sins. It is his covenant nation that is being oppressed, and therefore he will exercise judgment against those outside of Israel who oppress his people. And Nineveh, Assyria, is that great oppressor right now, so God is expected to show mercy to Israel by bringing judgment against Nineveh. And so Jonah would also be thinking, he says, now look, God, let's, let's be honest here. How, however sincere the people here of Nineveh might think that they were in their repentance. Come on, you know better. You know that real repentance would have included giving up their ambition to conquer nations instead of being in this great empire building. You know that they would be forsaking their gods and worshiping you, the one True God. There's no indication here that they've actually changed their religion. Now, Nineveh deserved destruction however way you want to look at it. It was an oppressing nation. It was a nation outside the Lord's covenant. And it was a nation that never really did forsake its ways. There's another minor prophet, Nahum, who came after Jonah. And his little short book is, is dedicated to denouncing Assyria and Nineveh. This is, how, this is what Jonah perhaps even had, would love to have uh, preached about and actually wanted to see. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? That is what Nineveh deserves, because she is a violent, 
ruthless city and because she will bring destruction to Israel. It will take place in 722 B.C. And by the way, this is what will happen to Nineveh, but it will be after that time. So, why God? Why show mercy to a pagan nation outside of your covenant? Why show mercy to a nation that is without mercy itself and will bring destruction to your own people? So, we can understand Jonah now, can't we? We can understand why this assignment was so distasteful to him. And note, by the way, Jonah did not preach repentance. He only preached doom. He was not calling the city to do anything to appease the Lord. All of that repentance stuff, that was the king's idea, not his. No doubt, he was actually hoping that uh, this kind of repentance would not even occur to these pagans. I mean, this is one preacher who actually did not want his own message to be taken to heart. And can you blame him? Now that you understand to whom it was that he preached. Now, I suppose it is at this time that I need to take Jonah to task for being so hard-hearted and angry with God. But it will be next week that God has his little talk with Jonah about that. What I want for us now is to, to understand, to actually feel how troubling the mercy of God can actually be. Because if we do not have such an understanding, then we're in danger of taking the mercy of God too lightly. Uh, we take too lightly the mercy that we are to possess and show to others and take too lightly the mercy that God has shown us. So consider... Lessons that we can learn. So, for example, one question, the obvious question. Are we willing to be merciful like our Father? And before we we are quick to say yes, consider what mercy entails. It means to love our enemies. This is what Jesus spoke about in Luke 6, 32 to 36. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Now, who are these enemies? I would think most of you would say, well, look, I I have no enemies, meaning you don't regard anyone or treat anyone as an enemy. But what Jesus means here is that anyone who mistreats you, that's an enemy. And he he describes this in the verses just before this text that I read. Let Let me read backing up to verse 27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. 
To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other one also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So let's think about this for a moment. I mean, surely you can probably recall even now, having been mistreated by someone, maybe someone who's never apologized to you, and likely will do it again. Jesus says, be merciful to that person. Turn the other cheek. In fact, not only turn the other cheek, do good to that person. And that is what is asked of anyone who wants to be a child of God. Because he is kind and to the ungrateful, even to the evil. This is the burden that Jonah bore, and it's the same one for us as well, to be so merciful. Now, the second one is a a good question to ask. Do you understand that in this story, we are the city of Nineveh? We're We're the Ninevites. We Gentiles were not part of the covenant people. Listen to Paul's description of us, or at least of our, of our ancestors, in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh of hands. Okay, Remember this, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. You can't be more upfront about it. As Gentiles, we were not covenant people. We did not possess the heritage of Israel. Have you thought about this? Do you know what the first controversy, the first religious controversy in the church, the Christian church was? It was whether or not Gentiles could actually be included in the church. I mean, even the apostles, they didn't understand this. I mean, Peter had to have this vision to understand that God's saving mercy would extend to our ancestors, to non-Jews. It would take the efforts of Paul, who had been a former Pharisee, to convince the church leaders The Gentiles didn't have to, in essence, become Jews first before they could be accepted into the church. And yet God showed us and showed to our Gentile forebearers mercy, saving mercy. So much that we, with our Jewish believing brothers and sisters, are identified together as one people. Peter, whom I I said needed that vision to accept Gentiles, he would write years later to these Gentiles. It's in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And now here's what he would say to them. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's drawing here images from, from Exodus. A people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now, now you have received mercy. And Paul himself would continue to write in Ephesians, 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So then, how can we not be merciful to our enemies when God has shown us such mercy? Now, so far, I basically have had one lesson, which is God is so merciful, especially since God has shown us such mercy, we too ought to show mercy to those who mistreat us. Now, if you're like me, you just kind of sigh at the, the burden that's placed upon you. I mean, I have enough trouble being merciful to people who have done me no wrong, much less to those who have ill-treated me. How can I expect God then to continue to be merciful toward me when I keep failing in this time and time after again? Well, Paul addressed this concern in, in Romans 5, 6 through 11. Let me read what he says. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now, here's Paul's point. He says, look, if God would show us a sacrificial love while we were in the state of being his enemies, how much more now can we rest in that love now that he has brought us into a state of reconciliation? See, we, we tend to reverse the argument, or at least I know I do. We think now that if we, since we, we know this kind of love that God has shown to us, well, how can he continue to show it to us when we keep acting like sinners? You know, we might say, like, like I agree, God has been extraordinarily merciful toward me. All the more than I'm convicted of my lack of having that same merciful spirit, isn't there a limit to what I can expect from God? Because God will not be mocked. Well, that's true. God will not be mocked. But such a thinking ignores two, two truths, two premises. The first is this, is that Christ's work on the cross produced a change of status for us. Before Christ, we were outside the covenant of God's nation. But now we're in. As Paul explains again in Ephesians 2.19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. Okay, you were before, but you're not now. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are now citizens of God's covenant nation. We're members of his household. We're no longer outsiders. 
nor are we under some kind of like, like time period of probation and God's going to see how we're doing. We are now justified. We have been reconciled to our Heavenly Father. That makes a difference. So though we, we do still sin, we are ourselves regarded by God differently than if we were outside the covenant. God's love now rests not on us. God's love rests on the steadfast love of his covenant promise to his covenant people. It now rests on his being our father, our king. And so like the psalmist, we too now appeal to God for his, his mercy, for his being gracious to the people of his covenant. Like the prodigal son who never stopped regarding his father as his father. Who knew that if he returned, he would receive mercy. So our God never stops being our father. And so our father never stops showing us mercy. So there's this change of status that is given to us by Christ's work. And there's also a change of heart. Romans 2.29 teaches us that being a Jew, that is a member of God's covenant, it's not a matter of external uh, circumcision, but rather it is the inner circumcision. The circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the latter. So we are now having that circumcision taking place inside of us. It's not just external but an inner change is taking place. The writer to Hebrews, in chapter 8, verse 10, is making this point, and he he quotes from Jeremiah 31. He says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's not just something written out there. It's been made to take place inside of us. And so the point is that we're not merely adopted into God's family, not merely made citizens of his nation by his merciful feelings. Rather, a change has been made in us so that we have been made acceptable so that we can be adopted. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who has come in us and has regenerated regenerated us, who serves as a seal that we belong to God. Do we still sin? Yes, of course. But we're no longer in a state of sin. We've been justified in Christ by grace through faith. And now the work of sanctification by the Holy Spirit has started in us. And it continues and it will continue until we are received into the presence of the Lord. I mean, I know it can be discouraging at times to observe how little that we think we have progressed in the Christian walk. But even our observation is obscured by our sinful flesh. You've got to understand that the Holy Spirit is doing a greater work in each of us than we think. We are growing in ways that we do not necessarily see. And and one reason for that 
is because the Spirit is doing such an excellent job in convicting us of our sins, sins that we never would have noticed before. So there is a change in us, and God sees it because God is rotting that change in us. And we can receive the words for ourselves that Paul wrote to the Philippians when he said this in one, chapter 1, verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Truly, our God is a gracious and merciful God. We give you thanks, our God, for such mercy. Such mercy that you have shown to us. We who were sinners, we who were, who were your enemies. We could see within our hearts, if we could have seen within our hearts what you have seen. We would have been appalled and would have not had had any hope for mercy. And yet your mercy is steadfast. Your mercy is based upon your own character. And your mercy, it will never end. Oh, may we be merciful as you are. May, th- may our lives be marked by that. May our neighbors, all who know us, maybe even, may even those who regard us as enemies, may they even have to begrudgingly say, here is one who shows forth mercy to others. And that you then would be given all the glory and honor and praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.